Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and I am so thankful to have Scott Beale here, poet Scott Beale, writer Scott Beale, teacher Scott Beale, friend Scott Beale, here in the studio um, with his debut collection of poetry, Wait Till You Have Real Problems from Tzank Press. Um, Scott, welcome to the, the show, the program. Hi, T. Thanks for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, well, thanks for being here on this special edition, Living Writers, the Thanksgiving edition. Yeah. Um, I'm just springing on you right now, apparently, (laughs) right? Um, Yeah, so you want me to talk about Thanksgiving? What are you thankful for? No, (laughs) we'll get to that. We'll get, we won't start out with that. But thanks for picking the songs for the show. Yeah, Um, that was really fun. (laughs) And I thought a lot about it. You actually, no joke, everyone. Scott really did take this seriously, so seriously that I was like, Scott, don't, don't worry. <laughs> but, but why? Why did, why did you, um, why was the music important to you, Scott? I don't know. I guess I was, I was trying to think of it from multiple different angles. I mean, I think I was overthinking it and in the end just picked stuff I listened to. Um, but I feel like music has been a really important part of who I've become both as a person and a writer, you know, I, when, when I was in the, I used to tell people, you know, thinking about influence that I thought, you know, it's like a 20 year old. I thought that like Megadeth had just as much influence on me as anything I'd read in terms of how I put together poems, you know? So then I was thinking, should I pick some Megadeth songs or something? And that's kind of true, isn't it though? Like there's these moments in time where the, the music and how it's delivered to us and what you need from it is, yeah. yeah it's just as important as how a poem comes to you and and um yeah and i think the way i listen to music especially growing up you know as a as a metalhead I, I paid very little attention to singers or lyrics i was always just listening to the the guitars and stuff chugging away in the background and thinking about but i feel like the way songs were put together really really affected the way i thought about how art should be made you know how how to how to make um, how things should change and be dynamic and grow, you know? Um, so I don't, and, and I think in some ways that's still true the way I listen to music. I mean, most of the selections I picked for today are from around the world, not sung in English, you know, because, I, um, which is, I feel like so often good music is disappointing when the lyrics are disappointing. It's one of the beautiful things about listening to music that's sung in, you know, Hungarian or Japanese or is that, I don't know what the lyrics are, so I can't be disappointed <laughs> by them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the, its voice is instrument, fairly. Yeah, uh, right, absolutely, yeah. Without guiding narrative, and you can feel sort of what's there instead of being told the story or so. I, I mean, even the way a voice moves is is a story, you know? Like, they're, um, the, just like the, the dynamics of how a pitch rises and falls or when the tempo, you know, speeds up and slows down or the way it interacts with the music and quieter and louder moments. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot in, in, I think, and it's not intellectual so much as physical, the way you feel a voice th- through you, you know, that I think is, I don't know, in, in terms of like how I write, it's probably more aspirational. Like I would like to write poems that do similar things with voice as some of the music I, I love. Um, I don't know how often the work actually does it, you know, but um, but it's something I, like I would like to be able to make a poem 
make someone feel the way I feel when I listen to, you know, um, yeah, like London Calling or something, you know? Right. It's, and it seems like it might be something where, because uh, I also was just lucky enough to see your, your book launch at Neutral Zone last Thursday, last week on Thursday. And the performing part of the poems is, uh, or, or perform. You know what, Scott? I'm going to stop there for one second and do sort of the conventional, traditional thing and read your bio from the back of the book. And then let's get to this because okay. we're, we're skipping ahead, aren't we now? <laughs> Fair <laughs> it's enough. very deep, deep waters of conversation. And, and I want to get to that. Okay. Um, so Scott Beale's book, Wait Till You Have Real Problems, just out this month with Dezenk Press. Um, the short bio on the back of the book. Scott Beale's poems have appeared in Rattle, Prairie Schooner, Indiana Review, Poetry Journal, and other journals, and have received awards, including a 2014 Pushcart Prize. He serves as a writer in the Schools for Design Books in Ann Arbor and teaches in the Sweetland Center for Writing at the University of Michigan. Yeah, I guess I should have added colleague in there earlier to that. <laughs> My glorious listing of... <laughs> Scott, Scott Beale. Um, you mentioned friend, which is a step beyond colleague, right? So that, I think that's fair. And you, you know what? Um, looking at the book, Scott, um, it looks like there's a couple of friends on the cover, like these two little girls. Um, you write about them in a, a poem inside. Um, and it's this great image from um, the the work's progress uh, uh, administration right where they right, sent the right. photographers out. yeah how did you come across this particular photo of these two little girls and yeah so um i got an email from the detroit institute of arts um announcing a photography exhibit you know that was going to be at the dia you know i i, I love the dia and i go um you know a few times a couple three times a year um i have but but anyway, so I got this email announcing this exhibit, and I I couldn't take my eyes off the photo. Um, it was it's I feel I think it's a really haunting photo. It's cropped a little bit, so you can't see everything in the photo on on in the the image that's on the book. Is there a like, woman rising from behind that's cropped out of the image that we have on the cover? She's actually that? there, like this kind of um, you can't quite tell that she's a woman. She's blurred. I mean, I mentioned that in the poem. That's that, what that there, I'm, But there's this like the right between like where their shoulders meet on the cover. Ah, if you that's... look, there's this kind of spectral figure kind of standing at a machine behind them. Oh, and that's what yeah. I do see it now. How yeah. that's a woman and her her elbow and right. Her. And I think you can see some of the machinery more clearly in the uncropped version of it. You know, so you can see like the teeth of these machines kind of extending. You know, into the the distance. You know, and just. Um, so it's this this huge factory setting full of these monstrous looking machines and these two girls I mean on the radio people aren't looking at the cover but so there's these um it's this old 1909 black and white photo there's these two girls kind of smiling brightly in kind of tattered looking clothing in front of this this array of machinery and this kind of dim dismal looking blurry woman kind of standing in the background um, and it, so I saw this photo, you know, I have two daughters, um, at the time I was writing a blog, a parenting blog for right. com, right. Um, and you know, and I had a post due and I was thinking, so I was thinking about this and the idea of, um, daughters much like mine, you know, like, like some, these are someone's daughters. These are, these are, are children that their life was, 
working in a factory, in, you know, in a Georgia cotton mill um, under awful conditions for very little pay for their families, you know. And, and the, they look like they're about seven or eight, <clears throat> don't they? Yeah, yeah. They, I, I'm, I, you know, yeah, they, they're very young. And, but they look delighted, you know, in this moment when someone's capturing them with a the camera, like maybe just the idea of being visible for a moment in a, in a system, in a situation where they are, they're invisible, you know, they are just, they're just part of the machinery is essentially why they exist in that factory. But it's a moment where they're, they're captured in, in their full humanity. You know, they, um, I have no idea what they were thinking. I have no idea what this day was like for them. But this idea, the, the contrast between that, this photograph which insists on their personhood and, and their, their capacity for joy, I think that's what really I, I found myself just kind of like shaken by, you know, the idea of the... let go of you. Right, right. When did you write the poem, Scott? Because did you have to go and write the blog post for... <laughs> no, no, well, the, the blog post was the poem. You know, I wrote the poem and then I posted it. I, and I talked a little bit about the photo and kind of framed it, you know, but, but I, I wrote, I, I posted the poem to the blog as my, my entry for the week, and which I did a few other times. There's actually at least two other poems in the book that also originated from that. Um, this is a poem called Gross Gorgonzola, which was a blog post. And this, and this one that... Um, watching my daughter learn to skate at Veterans Park, which, um, which was written for the blog, you know, um, but things. So I, writing a parenting blog seemed like a kind of boring assignment, you know, like I, I, I don't want to, I never wanted to read other people's parenting blogs, you know, like I, I didn't want to read stroller recommendations or the kinds of like, I don't know, the, the kinds of things you see on Facebook now, people posting cute pictures of their kids or, um, I didn't want it to be sentimental or, or trite in a way that I think is really easy to fall into. And even though, you know, parents, other, there were other bloggers. I don't want to denigrate them because people did some really nice work on there. Um, but, um, it's just easy to fall into kind of the things parents are supposed to say. Like I never blinders. wanted my blog to be like the things um. that you expect a parent to say. You know, I was always trying to find unusual ways to come at it. And so introducing poems to the blog seemed like a fair right. way to do that. Would you, would you mind reading the poem f with the little girls? In um, it? I'm happy to. Because I feel like since we've been talking about it, maybe it would be good to give everyone a chance to hear it. Sure. So um, <clears throat> this is two girls in a Georgia cotton mill after a 1909 photograph by Lewis Wicks Hine. I have such a crush Girl on the left, full of a laugh she barely holds in. Frumpy dress and braids be damned. I'm in love with the tattered jacket of the girl on the right, her chaos of hair. That smile like she's seen a bird hatch from a hand, pleased as if youth could shrug off the teeth of the machinery aligned behind her, eating up the frame. The promise of her life, six days dawn to dusk till never. The photo hides the stench and heat, freezes the light before afternoon thins into three feet of dark between brick and steel, leaves out the promise of beatings, pennies of pay to barely keep them eating. This lucky moment, the smiles despite, that's what ruins me about history, that joy, those sparks it falls over like a bell built to smother. 
yank them free, pack knapsacks with sandwiches, shove them on a yellow bus, keep them from blurring like the ghost of the woman who rises behind them. Thank you, Scott. Sure. And it's so it's amazing that you got this picture for like when did you know you wanted this to be the cover of your book wait till you have real problems you know I, of course when when one has one's first book I, like I, I was i was really excited about the idea of having a cover having some say in what the cover might be and i, I didn't really know how that process was going to work out you know um i was sort of invited if i wanted to to offer suggestions you know and um and this was the only i think i don't know i had a lot of other i i like the idea of having you know some a contemporary art or something like there, there were a lot of other ideas that i, w I would have liked um what? it could have even been pink <laughs> perhaps you know but i think i um i i thought i wanted this poem in the book i thought the poem wouldn't be right without the photo in some ways right yes. so having it as the cover seemed like aha i can solve that problem you know people will be able to see these girls understand the, the poem better um so you know and I, I tracked it down it was in the public domain i called the national archive and talked to someone who could confirm that for me who was even like here let me give you a, a better download of the photo and um so it worked out great and i you know um so here it is. Oh, that couldn't be better. And I'm sure the design designers were like, oh, this is, they were convinced right away when they saw it as well. I, you know, I think their feelings were a little mixed. Oh, actually, okay. But, <laughs> okay. But, um, I think, um, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the person I deal with most, you're the person I was dealing with most liked it, you know, like a couple of people liked it. I think one person there was concerned about the, the idea that there weren't any boys on the cover, like wondered if there was a way to get a boy on the cover too. And I, I don't really know where that was coming from. You know, if it was like, if it was about like people won't buy a book that doesn't have a male on the cover yeah, or something, you know, that's kind of disturbing. Um, I think it was a, it was a concern with the blurbs too. I think in marketing the book, like that, you know, when I told them I wanted to ask Alice and I wanted to ask Marianne, Marianne and I, I mean, these were my first three choices of people and, that and, I wanted and they, and all, and they all responded and David Kirby, you know, but I think a man. they they were reassured that one of them was a man. Like they were like, that's, it's good that there's at least one man whose voice is going to be on your book. Um, I can only guess that they have, you know, they have experience with selling books, that this is an important factor, but that was one thing that left me kind of flabbergasted, you know, um, yeah, that me. I am. Too, I'm flabbergasted. So that I'm just sitting here now, somewhat. Yeah. I'm shocked. Okay, let's take a short break, and sure. then we'll come back. Today okay. on the program, Scott Beale is here. His book, "Wait Till You Have Real Problems," his first collection of poems, out with Dzank Books, with two little girls on the cover from 1909. We've got the Liz behind the glass. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, Scott Beal is here today in the studio. His book, Wait Till You Have Real Problems, po- a book of poems, um, really great. Um, Wait Till You Have Real Problems um, is such a, a, a wonderful title. <laughs> and it's so... Um, I don't know. I just, I, I'm so happy about this book, Scott. I think I also still have the fever from the book launch from last week at Neutral Zone, how it was such this buoyant time. You had um, you had a cake that featured the, the girls, the book cover here. Yeah. Um, but um, even more importantly, uh, I think you had um, friends and former students reading before you read. And it was such this, I don't know, it was just so lovely to think that you had in I think it just showed also um, some of your values what you believe about poems poems in the community because um, in a way I was like Scott how many people are reading before you I was kind of like Scott I want to hear I want to celebrate your book and this is going to be about you darn it <laughs> um, but then it was just an amazing amazing event well I mean it was about me you know, but I fit into a community and it, it is, um, I don't know. I, in, in some ways I owe this book, um, or I, I don't know the, the person I am and the poet I am has been shaped so much by the community here, you know? And like, I don't know, like back in 2002 through a weird chain of coincidences, I got invited to be part of something called the Volume Summer Institute, which is a writing camp, a week-long intensive writing camp for teenage poets um, run through the neutral zone. And, um, and y- you were asking me a little bit before about performing, right? You know, like, yes. um, which we can talk about later, but it was something I, you know, I, I had, I had never wanted to be a boring reader before this, you know, and I'd been to plenty of readings through the MFA program of like boring readers, you know, like people who seemed like they didn't even like their own work. So why should I? Right. So I was always committed to reading poems in a way that would hopefully entertain and engage Engage, people. But, um, but this was my first real experience with like people who had been in the poetry slam community, Mm -hmm. you know, like performing poets who that was a, a direct and, part of their practice you know part of the like i I heard one poet refer to it as like its own form of scholarship you know about how to to learn how to embody and present a poem you know in in space um it is embody not just deliver yeah yeah yeah. and um and i know incredible performers you know and i I think there are a lot of of poets these days who are moving like making this trajectory like developing in the slam community or through that experience and then moving into MFA programs and publishing, you know, and there, there are a ton of amazing poets who are doing great work, um, that have gone through this kind of trajectory for me it was very much the opposite, you know, like, and I've never made my, a name for myself in slam. So like that, I don't mean to say that I've, I've done that in reverse, but I've definitely learned, you know, in that sequence, like about performing, um, but also, but I guess what I meant to say is like the, the people I met through this process, you know, students that I've met and, and had a chance to work with and other poets and performers that I've met have challenged me and shaped me in so many ways. Um, it made me a more ambitious, riskier, I think more emotionally engaged poet in a lot of ways. And I think, and I think a lot of the way that this book looks is, you know, 
it's because of how I've grown through knowing and working with so many of these people. Um, I can only, I, I, I can imagine what you're saying, Scott, from even being there that one night where you, uh, Thursday at the neutral zone with, um, uh, I don't remember her name, but one of the young readers who seemed to read out of her, her journal. And it was, uh, the poem was something that was, there was craft there, um, from uh, like the imagery of like, uh, scanning something like the cemetery to, at the end, there was, I, you know, there's not a cemetery big enough for every, well, the ones that I've heard or so like, and this, um, amazing and very honest and vulnerable story of abortion. And, um, I, I don't know. It was sort of this thing where if people are, if young people are, if this is what they're bringing and then also to the stage to embody and, and have like witnesses, I I can see how that would change you. There's, that was, um, this really remarkable young poet, her name is Rachel Kirby, you know, and I had known her for several years through the NutraZone. Um, you know, I, I also, I ran a short story workshop there for yeah. a few years and she was a student in the short story workshop and she also became involved in the poetry project and she was on the, the Ann Arbor Slam team that went to the National Poetry Slam one year when I was coaching the team. So I got to know her, you know, for over a space of years there and I'm, you know, we're still in contact and, and, um, well, she you know, stood and, and up friends, for you, know, you. She wanted this to be part of that day. Yeah, for the yeah, book yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm overdue for having coffee with her, you know. But um, um, but I think that poem is. You're right. There's craft there. I mean, she's been working hard on her craft for years, right? And um, and I think in in the craft exhibited by the poets in the Ann Arbor literary community is often astonishing, right? Um, and a lot of great poets have come out of here and gone to other places and. Um, you know, and, and publish their own books and, um, have performed on huge stages, you know, and I could name several names I won't right now, but, but also I think what you, the other thing you're noticing is like the courage of it, like the, the, the personal courage to tell deep and true stories, you know, I remember as I, I, I hate that I keep coming back to like the MFA program, you know, I was in, I was in the MFA program here a long time ago, you and know, you were also the, an undergrad here. I was, so yeah. you were in undergrad, you won a Hopwood, then you rolled into the MFA program right away yeah. and won another Hopwood. Right. And then you but, were gone for a while. I was and and we, yeah, we, and we can talk about the, the gone for a while, oh. too, but, but, or whatever. but, but one thing I remember, like my, my MFA thesis advisor was David Baker, who's the poetry editor for the Kenyan review. He was visiting and he really liked my work, but I remember at the end, you know, as I was getting my degree and getting his final like responses, like he challenged, he was challenging me to have like more emotional depth in my poems. And, and I thought, you're crazy. I've got tons of emotional depth in my poems. I don't know what you're talking about. I was kind of insulted. Like, of course, yes. like how, you know, um, Aren't you reading them? Right. <laughs> but but then but then you know in hindsight years later like after you know now as a poet when I look back on that work I see that he was of course he he was right you know that there was a kind of I don't know like but you're also so young I don't know why I want to start defending you right away no, well, but I mean because you were an, an undergrad and then you were immediately in the MFA program that seems I don't mean to say I was bad you know and I right. think and some of those poems I think are were you know they were good and they were important to me and um 
actually one of them is in this book. Which you know, one like, is it, Scott? It's it's a poem. It, actually, it's a poem I wrote as an undergraduate. Is in I this did book. About that. Um, it's it's a poem called "An Assessment of My Masculinity." <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, that I wrote when I was like 19 years old. Um, huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of the so most of the poems in the book do not date from the early 90s, but this <laughs> one poem does. You know, and it just seemed. Um, and I'd left it out of some versions of the manuscript and put it back in and left it, you know, oh, like, that's interesting. there was a lot of like, you know, there are a lot of poems that were in here that are not or other, you know, others that almost made it in and that got taken back out. But that was one that I was on the fence about because in some ways it feels like it is in a kind of different voice because I wrote it as a much different person and as a different poet. Um, but it also felt like it fits really naturally into the project of the book in, in a way and speaks to some of the other poems in ways that I think are useful um, so I felt like yes. it, ultimately it deserved to be there. And, yeah. a, and a thread across the time of how you are, I don't know, changing or... Well, and, and I mean, and my relationship to masculinity is something that is a, is a theme in several of the poems, you know, like a lot of the poems about growing up. I mean, I, when I put the book together, I was thinking about like gender identity issues which i've written about before and i had a chapbook before this like a self-produced chapbook called pink parts that i would like sell at readings and stuff you know that um that really helped me figure out how this book should look huh. um and, and so like the gen so? um i'm most of the poems from that chapbook are in this book you know like there was there was a it was a i was thinking of i i when i was describing that chapbook to people I used to, when I was trying to describe what it was about, I would accidentally make this word up like femininity. I would be trying to talk about this, this how it was about femininity and masculinity. I would say it wrong, so it'd be femininity. And that, that could so, be a great <laughs> title for a book too. But um, but because there is, I mean, and you can see in some of the poems here, like there's a there's there's I'm thinking about the blur between gender lines and like and how rigid these categories and limiting these categories are in poems like. Um, like the snail poem or like the medical bay poem. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm going to name a bunch of poems that people don't know what I'm talking about, but, but there are poems you, where I'm can, thinking about. But you can get your copy and you can come through and find these poems. Um, yeah. Or like the Bettys, you know, which is a poem about like, it, it's a longer poem in the book where I'm thinking about um, a, a few news stories, but it, it's really about how gender gets talked about and enculturated in people you know, like, like certain expectations of masculinity and how limiting and damaging those can be, um, for both, you know, for people of all genders, you know? Um, so that was one of the themes that I knew this book was going to be about. And, and also, you know, and then the other kind of balancing theme that intersects with that is childhood, you know, thinking about problems of childhood and all the ways it can kind of suck to be a kid, <laughs> you know, um, that people, which is where the title fits in. You know, I remember that being, this, I think there's a poem where I mentioned it's like the second most annoying thing that I ever heard as a kid was wait till you have real problems, right. you know, yes. like, um, especially someone you, who experienced bullying in school, you know, and, and I don't remember specific people that told me that if it's something I heard from parents or something that I heard from teachers or other voices, but voices of adults who would say, you know, wait till you have real problems. And, yes. It's so not, um, uncommon scott because i when i read came across that um when the line in the poem in the book where i was just like oh even i it's it rings true because i too had heard it as a child yeah <laughs> and thinking and and as a child you know like so 
it, the, the, the kind of sense is you don't have to go to work and pay bills, you know, wait, to, like, wait till you have real problems, have to deal with stuff like this. But as a child, what you do have to do is you have to go to school every day. And if you are an ostracized child or a bullied child, you have to go to school every day and face that and deal with that. Um, if you are a child who like feels stupid in certain subjects and you then and, and are made to feel stupider by what you know by the teachers that you have you have to go to school and face that every day and and internalize it and and if the people you're complaining to that uh, the, the people you're complaining to are telling you these are not real problems yeah. then um that's infuriating and dehumanizing and um so I hope that's changing, actually. I wonder, like, because I feel like now that there's, I mean, but maybe it's just like, it's the, the like, awareness that there's this happening. And maybe there's, like, a school psychologists I hear now instead of, I don't know, the old, old days. Because I don't think there was, there's a guidance counselor, but I don't know if they knew any psychology when I was in school. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it's probably changing for certain people who are lucky enough to be in the right schools for right. it to have changed. And, yeah. um, but not everywhere, not, not everywhere. across the board. You yeah. know, regionally it's different, I'm sure, and definitely depending on the resources of schools, which are so unequal. Exactly. We'll take a short break and we'll come back. Today on the program, Scott Beale, his debut collection of poems, Wait Till You Have Real Problems. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Scott Beale is here. His book of poems, Wait Till You Have Real Problems. Scott, tell us a little bit about that last song we just heard. Yeah, so it's um, it's this amazing band called Hangai, H-A-N-G-G-A-I. Um, they're from Beijing, but um, the singer um, is an ethnic Mongolian um, who had been in a punk band in, in Beijing, and then and decided he wanted to kind of get more in touch with his Mongolian roots, like and learn the traditional Mongolian music and sounds. And, um, and so this band, he's pulled together this band that it's in a way, it's kind of like what the Pogues did with Celtic music, right? Like with Irish music, kind of this blend of punk rock energy with this traditional instrumentation and melody. Um, it's kind of the Mongolian version of that, you know, like with, um, 
So this, so you can hear in that song a bit of the like the melody. Certainly, other songs there's more of like traditional instruments. There's also a throat singer in the band, so these singers go back and forth, and you get this. It's just this a really amazing hybrid of different sounds and song, um, which is which you know the song the song that came on before the earlier break. So it's a Hungarian like folk metal band um, called um, Dalriada, you know, and again they're they're playing with like this Magyar folk music. Um, you know, violins and flutes and other instruments, along with this heavy metal guitar and energy, and I, I just love these blends of hybrids, um, bringing things together that you don't think belong together and creating new things out of them. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what huh. that's what the music was. And that actually love your musical choices. Um, this, I was thinking about that. Um, you loving that and seeing that valuing that and i'm thinking about how that's also your poems too and even how you teach i think poems to to young people or to and what, why am i saying that you because, haven't seen me teach no. well i have yeah I, well <laughs> this just shows which what you don't know about the research i do for each of these <laughs> programs um well from hearing some of the that your former students read uh, the right. other evening um i feel like um there was a name of one of the poems that maybe was some, uh, maybe a poem, like, was it the Jelly Baby? No, shoot, now oh, this isn't. But what, yeah, one of the poems was this, it was a student writing about fruit babies, right? Fruit, fruit babies. babies, yeah. And it was something about the fruit baby flying, where I felt like, oh, I bet Scott said, see what you can make a fruit baby do, or you gave them something and put something, see, I think, it was like, I'm just making a mess of this. But. No, no, no. I mean, I could. That was actually. So that was our. It was a. That was an experiment. It was a Halloween prompt. It was. We had a, a workshop on Halloween. I had them make a list of scary things on the board, and then we made a list of things that are like adorable and not scary, or you know, or like friendly, right? See. And then um, hybrids. And then well, and then what I asked them to do is either to write a scary poem using only words from the friendly things list, or a or a love poem or a, like a beautiful like pastoral poem using things from the, the scary poem list and it was it worked out great you know there was there was a student in the class that wrote this amazing like love poem to a zombie you know about like this in, being infatuated and wanting to be in these like cold stiff arms and like um <laughs> but yeah so the fruit this was billy my student billy's attempt to like make something that's supposed to be cute these like babies I think it was the, the class was really obsessed with the idea of like babies who are dressed up as pieces of fruit on the internet. You know, that's what the fruit babies were. And then to try to make them terrifying. It's a real thing too. Then? I think it is a real okay. thing. I mean, if it, if I say on the internet after anything, it's a real thing, right? Right. Oh, clearly, my mistake. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in my own poems, for sure. I mean, I think it's. Um, yeah, this is one thing I was thinking about on the way over here, and just like flipping through the table of contents and everything. It's. Um, I, I think that one of the things I love about poetry is its ability to give us new ways of seeing and understanding the world and, um, and creating a kind of, like, I think juxtapositions or like, um, I don't know, like, there's some sections of the book that are kind of these myth-making sections you know there's these poems that do this perseus kind of yeah yeah right some are like some are remaking right you know it's, it's like perseus rapunzel beauty and the beast right um there so there are these kind of like classic stories which lots of people do that so i'm not saying like i invented some wheel there right but 
Um, although I try to do it a little bit differently than I've seen other people do it, you know, but these, so there's, there's a thread of reimagining some kind of very familiar tales and also inventing, you know, some, um, you know, the, in ways that just kind of, I don't know. Like um, even the first one, like the foam sword, the sword, yeah, the, yeah. the dream of the foam <clears throat> toy sword. Or. Yeah. Which, right. Like it's, um, it kind of, you know, it's, it's literally, it's a, it's a poem about a foam toy sword, but, 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 but thinking about the point of view of a foam toy sword and what its aspirations might be, you know, um, like the whole poem kind of unwinds from that premise. But I think even a simple thing like that, a simple switch, a simple, um, a simple tweak to reality can, and just, just making one tweak to reality and following that through to its logical conclusion is a way of seeing real issues in the world, real experiences in the world from an angle that makes them visceral and immediate and fresh. That kind of wakes us up to actually, you know, um, like to see things in a way that's more sharp, more clear, more immediate. And, um, and that's a way that I think poems have this power to make us more alive and more perceptive, you know? Yeah. It's re reminding me also of your poem, Liner Notes. That might be, that seems like a, a good Thanksgiving poem. <laughs> well, <laughs> in some ways, <laughs> maybe in only the obvious way. <laughs> but I think that's one of those ways where you're taking something and you're making it, you're using it as a vehicle to deliver something totally new, a way to talk about family, your brother, your parents, um, the fact of your birth um and but you're you're doing it as if um you're kind of at the oscars <laughs> what is, i or mean in, it's or a, in the album right right yeah <laughs> i mean right it's it's i think that's another it's another tool you know that not only me but like lots of poets use is is appropriating language language techniques from non-poetic traditions or non-poetic sources and and using them as a way to to create poems you know um, I was reading a, like an amazing poem earlier today by a poet named Denez Smith, um, where he does this with like kind of aptitude test questions. You know, he, he's thinking about racism and the experience of being a black male in the U S a young black male through a series of like aptitude test questions, you know? Um, and, and the results are really striking, you know, like, and, and the language of, you know, the way, the way an aptitude test is built has a kind of judgment built in. There is a correct answer among the, the given answers and someone from outside is going to impose that judgment on you. Like this becomes a real force inside his know, poem. Right. And we know these aptitude tests have inherent bias to right, them, like right. who's creating them, et cetera. Absolutely. So, um, so I think there's a definite power to like appropriating language, using it in creative ways to create new understandings. You know, it's also some a prompt I give students. You know, there's one point later in the semester where I'll have them write like personal safety instructions. You know, like I'll yes. um, I'll give them like safety instructions for a step ladder, and we'll talk about all the ways in which all the things you're not supposed to do with a step ladder, like you know climb above a certain rung or put it in front of an unlocked door, <laughs> you know, which I feel like there's a story there, right? Like, like that is on ladder instructions because of so many problems with people opening doors into ladder, you know, but, um, but to take that kind of like language and then create safety instructions for something we don't, 
see safety instructions on, you know, safety instructions for your parents, you know. I once had a student write safety instructions for a tiger owner, you know, like it was this amazing poem, right? Um, so liner notes is kind of in that tradition, you know, like it, it, I'm thinking about my fascination with, say like when I got that new Megadeth album I mentioned earlier, you know, and opened up the pack, like I couldn't wait to get home and open up these packages and like tear at these moments, just even though the, the statements are often banal, you know, they like to thank so-and-so, they use Diodario guitars and this these strings and these drumsticks and um and it was engineered by so people that always had like like quote like nicknames and quotation marks <laughs> as like their middle name you know so and so killer so and so right um but yeah i would just read through all the liner notes before even playing the album it's just part of the anticipation of like this experience i was about to have and um so that's what i that's what that poem is like my attempt to mirror that language but also to talk about you know, life. Do you do you want to read it, Scott? I don't. Did you pre-screen that one? Is that one I can oh, get geez. away with? You know what? That wasn't the the one I was mentioning earlier, which could be. So so maybe We're maybe we should to... maybe we should scan it at the break, <laughs> and decide if it's safe to read. Oh no, I already see. Yeah. Okay. okay. Maybe not. Well, we'll see. Well. Okay, but but just um, I was just so that people could hear. You could maybe if it if it wouldn't make you angry scott to read the first stanza that seems that's clean the first stanza that could, and that could at least give people a sense of what we were talking about <laughs> sure sure. this is not this is unconventional thanks for playing <laughs> fair enough all right so um liner notes scott would like to thank god mom and pop my brother especially my brother hauling his 40-ton rig cross-country like a band on tour, crowds roaring for paperbacks and 12-packs, the burdens of stardom, home snagging his brain and unraveling his years over the interstate highway system. Bless him for surviving. Scott would like to thank God, but can't. How do you love, love me, or else? I mean, if someone did invent artichoke hearts and diminished fifths, blow him a kiss. Scott would like to thank loofahs, ragtime, and any weekday without a cubicle. Scott would like to thank someone for creation, but hymns are for chumps. So that's the first stanza, folks, and um, thanks for reading that, Scott. We, sure. pr we probably could have even gotten away with the second one. It wasn't until... The third one. But anyway, <laughs> um, so while we're musing about this, this hopefully this is just making everyone curious. You got to go grab your copy of Wait Till You Have Real Problems um, out this month with Dezank Books um, Press, which is local press. So you'll be supporting a local poet, Scott Beale, and a local press. Um, these would make great like holiday gifts, definitely. And you should <laughs> be able to get them at local bookstores like Literati and Nicola's. So... Yes, exactly. And on December 16th, there'll probably be some books at Sweetwater's on the corner of um, Washington and Ashley. That's right. right? At Skazit, you're going to be reading, Scott. So folks could come by and um, hear you reading in the Skazit series that you and um, Carrie and Fiona all run. And um, and you're, you are kindly reading because I know you were resisting it um, but I'm glad you are and there'll be books there where people could come here see and get a book signed actually the, the other thing I'm really excited about for that reading um, is that I'm also I've invited my daughter 
to read with me my 10 year old daughter jocelyn who um is also going to have chapbooks for sale of oh. poems that she has written so i think what's going to be really spectacular about that night is hearing Jocelyn read some of her poems so, along with me. She's read at Skazet before on the open mic and people, I mean, she's amazing. So, um, so that's really a good reason for people to come out, I think, is to hear Jocelyn's poems and, and then mine will be a bonus. And it's, and it's a family, it's a family book celebration. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah. Um, so Scott Beale is here today. His book, wait till you have real problems. You can go to see, um, him read at Skazip December 16th with his daughter, Jocelyn with her chapbook as well. Um, you've got living writers short break and we'll be right back. Ceux qui vivent font ceux qui luttent et ceux qui raisonnent Avec raison que les causes sont justes et bonnes Dans le chapasse, meurt de maladies curables Dans la communauté éclate de l'eau potable Dans l'exploitation devenue inacceptable Et puis la race ne plus qu'on les accable La toute puissante économie a fait un enfer leur vie Scott Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Scott Beale is here. Wait till you have real problems. His first collection of poems out with Dezank Books. Um, thanks again to the Liz for engineering on this day before Thanksgiving 2014. Um, Scott, it's so great that you're here. I'm glad you live in town. Thank you for doing the Thanksgiving, the pre-Thanksgiving Day show. <laughs> Living writers. And and thank your girls for me and, and Kat too, so that because I know this is a busy time. Sure. Um, so would you mind reading? Um, I've got a poem request. Usually don't do this on the show um but lewis actually asked if you could read this one for his friend george um who he thought would really like he's like you've got to read this guy scott beale's book of poems you really like him okay especially this one and uh and this this is one that you um actually you said that you uh you used to weep when you would watch this scene. I don't know if you were going to introduce it, Scott, but... I can, yeah. I mean, there's... I remember... So, in the 90s, I believe, I saw um, a French documentary on insects called Microcosmos, which is an amazing film that everyone should see if you haven't. Um, the Liz has Liz, seen it. She's not... A... <laughs> and it's, um, it's... It's... The camera work is innovative in a way that like alters the scale of what you're seeing. So you really look like the insects are at human scale or, or that you are at insect scale. And so, so scene by scene, you're seeing insects, you know, seeing them in a new way, you know, um, and it just changes your degree of empathy for them or your sense of your own relationship to the universe. Right. Um, there's the scene of snails, you know, having sex, um, 
and which is what this poem is about that yeah it's um there's an italian aria playing in the background and um it's this really gorgeous it, it really does reduce me to tears no matter how many times i see it i cannot watch it without you know falling apart so what do you think um, that is like what I get, well, I guess we'll find out because it, yeah, it's, it's in, in the, the poem. poem. It's in the poem. So <laughs> if you want, we can talk about it afterwards. So, okay. um, all right. The snail scene. Mrs. Snail drags her gut over grass, leaving a wake of slick bent stalks as she inches toward the clearing where Mr. Snail lingers to greet her. It takes forever to arrive at the moment, and once there, they ripple in it, press and press, more naked than naked, glistening pink organs with calcite coils slung on their backs. How could those cups contain such extravagant bodies? Waves of craving pass through the seam where they're suctioned close. Eye stalks curl and probe, gazing with whatever awareness snails gaze with. Though to us, neither looks more butch than the other, nor lovelier. We can't tell Mr. from Mrs. because they both are both. One's head leans into the other, then tips back, yielding, rapturous, scandalous. How can any beast touch so lushly? as if you were holy tongue and i was holy tongue and the shells of our mouths hung to the side as we shoved bud to bud as if we could slide from under our spiraling worlds pour skin to skin and swim and I, I love that the like it's so surprising right at the end when you say and swim like really lovely yeah Yay! Thank you. So that's the snail one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you know, I guess you were asking, like, what is it about the scene that makes me crazy or makes you know makes me fall apart? And I, I really do. Well, think... I think so moved. Like that's what it seems like. Whereas there's something in it that you're just. Oh, it's it's so beautiful. You know, like I mean, they're they come together. Their bodies come together. They like merge in this upright fashion, where neither one is on top, neither one is on bottom. Like it feels so egalitarian and beautiful, and and like in sharing in this give and take. Um, it is also so viscerally, like just the way that their bodies ripple and move. Like I mean, it's, it's this gorgeous, like. If, like you just it feels like you see a real emotional exchange there you know and i I'm, i know in some ways it's dangerous to overread you know like what what to anthropomorphize animals too much at the same time i think it's dangerous to presume you know an absence of real feeling or of real dignity or you know um and i feel like this is a scene that really makes you feel the dignity and 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 feeling between these creatures in a way that feels like a, a model for what human sexual experience should be like you know like we should be able to come together in ways that are fair and be, like alice fulton which is one of my favorite poets alice fulton i read an interview where she talks about the word fair as as like you know aspirationally for poems she talks about how it's a perfect word because it something that's fair is beautiful right fairness is beauty but also justice right that 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 the goal of poetry should be to write st something that is both fair in the sense of beautiful 
and fair in the sense of being just, of having an ethics. You know, she's calling out poets who all too often are doing what, yeah, like what another poet, Tim Siebel's calls a like clever ballooning, you know, like an idea of like, um, I don't you, you, like, like writing over, I don't know, like there's a lot of opaque poetry. There's a lot of poetry that, or a lot of poetry that's even confessional and personal in, in a way that is sometimes narcissistic, you know, that's not really engaged with the outside world. Um, I'm thinking about this a lot this week, you know, thinking about what the role is of poetry in a world where, you know, a grand jury de declines to charge someone who has shot a black teenager unarmed, you know, like more than a half a dozen times, you know, from a distance. Um, thinking about what is the role of words in the face of of enormous and pervasive injustice, you know? And I think this idea of, like, when we write poems, they need to have a sense of justice to them. We need to be informed by our own sense of outrage in ways that are, you know, sometimes overt, but should always be at least informing the body of the work. If they're not, if we're writing stuff that is simply accepting or sidestepping the status quo then we are we are we are silent we are allowing you know the I, yeah and it can be work that is oh very smart very intellectual or very oh look at what you've made and it's strange how this seems to go back a little bit and not that this was i'm not i don't want to connect this to the earlier thing directly, but what David Baker was saying about emotional depth, like this idea of, like, I feel like that you can link to, to what is fair, what is, where is the justice or where is the source of the depth of vision or so? No, I, absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 42 year old middle-class white male straight poet. I have a, an enormous amount of privilege, you know, as a, as a young person, I was still most of those things, you know? And I think, Writing poems from a position of privilege is, it's very easy to not engage in justice, you know, and to write poems that kind of, I don't know, are about things like, you know, I don't, human nature and mortality, you know, like, as if these things are divorced from issues of equity or issues of, um, of democracy, issues of, um, violence, you know, this per perpetual, that happens every day, you know, um, that we are a part of, you know, and systems of violence that we are a part of, you know, like to write poems that pretend as if that doesn't exist is very easy. Or to live know. as if it doesn't Certainly, exist. you know, I feel it, right. Poems it's, are part of how you're living. Yeah, and right. And, and a poem, writing poems is a very small part of living and certainly not a sufficient response to, you know, to injustice right but it, but if one is going to write poems because one believes in them as you know as i was saying earlier something that can shape perception that can make us more alive more human more aware of Somehow. the things around us right if see. if i yeah Somehow right see. absolutely like if if i believe that poems have that power that capacity if i if i want to you know like revel in the 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 um, audacious optimism of like Percy Bysshe Shelley when he says that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, you know, like um, if 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 I want to if I want to accept that if I if I devote my life to writing poems because I believe that they are worthwhile in those ways, then I have to like the, the poems have to matter to 
the everyday experience of real people who are not, who, uh, who do not share the level of privilege that I have, who suffer consequences that I don't often suffer. You know, um, I think the poems in this book, you know, I, this is also something that I, I'm not saying that I achieve the goal here all the time. You know, I'm sure that I do have some navel gazing work, you know, I, or, or I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I hope not navel gazing, you know, but I, yeah, like, I have a, yeah, I, but I do have like a lot of deeply personal work that is about like deeply personal things that are, you know, there's a very, maybe a more constricted circle around myself of like, you know, it, it, I, I mean, a writer always hopes for a universal resonance, you know, but, um, but I mean, so I don't know. I mean, I have a whole lot, like a lot of the, the poems I've written over the past few years have had to do with my marital separation and divorce, you know, and like, I feel like those poems are really connected to me, the experiences that I've had, you know, me trying to understand like romance and love and commitment and attachment, things that matter to and people, loss. but, um, and loss, right. For sure. Um, but things that, you know, things that matter and certainly matter universally, but are easy to talk about without engaging in social justice issues you know like for for some people i think um and sometimes it may you know poems like that may fail in some regards to like really speak to to everyone in the world we live in i think poems in this book i'm i'm hoping do speak to some really important dynamics in terms of like gender power relations in particular heterosexist power relations uh, i think is part of what i think is important to me about that snail scene yes. right and this poem is the idea that and, and coming to understand halfway through the poem that these are these are hermaphroditic snails, right? Like that both. they that that, right, like they both, both are both, right? Like I think that that's also a really powerful thing to understand about the snails in this scene is that they they don't have this. I, I guess I have to stop soon, but but, <laughs> um, but they they don't have the the power dynamics that we bring to relationships because they are constructed differently. They live in a different plane, and I think it's a beautiful you know, thing to have in mind aspirationally. And can't we all be both in, in universal ways or, or try to be all. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all, you know, we are more both than we think often, you know? And I, I think some of these poems are trying to honor that. Scott, thank you so much for talking with me today. This is the happy, happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving I'm, to you I'm, too, Steve, and thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm, I'm thankful you're, you're in the world and your book of poems is in the world. Wait till you have real problems. Um, and Scott, you and your daughter Jocelyn will be um, reading December 16th at Sweetwaters for the Skazit Poetry Series. Yep. Um, thanks so much for being on the program. Everybody out there, thanks for listening. Thanks to the Liz for engineering. Um, safe travels, everyone. Um, and happy Thanksgiving. I'm T. Etzel. Until next time.
the Hilton Hotel. On top of the Hilton Hotel. For your entertainment pleasure. WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. If you were any further left, you'd be watching TV. Good evening. This is Our Wolf, Our Wolf, and I'm here for a very special 60-minute drive-time polka party tonight. I know there was a couple of people who were hoping I would get on here and do some kind of an imitation sports update, but to be frank with you, people stopped taking, uh, keeping score on Polish folks uh, 